All right, good evening, everyone. It is a joy and delight to be able to be with you. We had many miles of Virginia, a few miles of West Virginia, a couple of miles of Maryland, and quite a few miles in Pennsylvania to travel today, but thankfully they were every, every mile we traveled was a safe one, so we praise God for that. Long way between there and here, so... Uh, Anyway, we're very happy to be with you, and it is a joy to myself, personally, to be able to share with you the Word of God. Uh, I feel as though preaching is important, and I don't know if you feel that way or not. Maybe you wish we'd have a night of singing and forget the sermon, I don't know. But preaching is important. In fact, it is the means God uses to, sh- to share His Word, to communicate His Word so that people are saved that they come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so it is good to be with you to do that this evening and throughout the rest of the week. I appreciate the atmosphere here. It seems as though uh, the word anticipating has been used several times. We've been anticipating these meetings. And so I appreciate that, and I hope that you have come this evening with a a goal or a vision or an aspiration of some sort that you actually want to see something occur here this week in your life, that you aren't just coming here because the church has planned meetings and they've invited a preacher to come from far away. And so I guess we better go to church, you know. I hope it's a little more than that, that you actually have some spiritual goals and aspirations that you might grow into the likeness and the image of Jesus uh, and serve him better than perhaps you have in the past. So anyway, we are only three this evening, but actually we started out, well, we started out single, of course, and then my wife and I got married along the way, and then we were two of us, uh, and then the Lord prospered our family to the point that we were, we were eight people, and there were a few years where I was able to travel around doing like I'm doing this evening, and we had eight people. We had two parents and six children to take to New York and to take to, you know, wherever we went. We went in all kinds of places doing this. But uh, we are now down to just one boy that we get to take with us. So it has something to do with the color of our hair and the number of birthdays that we've had and things like that, life changes, and some of you know that very well. Um, Things are not, the the one thing that you can count on for sure in life, there's many things that you can, but one of them is that things will change, and things will not stay the same. And so here we are this evening with a very abbreviated family. I do have a daughter in Canada. She's married to a Canadian. I have another daughter that lives in Myerstown, and I have a daughter that's in British Columbia in college, And I have two children that are home this week feeding and watering our chickens. And we do not have the automatic operation like some people do. They push a few buttons in in the control room and out goes the feed and out goes the water and out goes the, you know, whatever, the manure. And and in comes, the joke is, in comes the the check right into the bank account. It's all automatic with hardly any work involved. Ours, we carry buckets of water and we carry buckets of feed and we only have about maybe 200 laying hens and uh, some pullets and things like that. In the summertime, we will raise vegetables by God's grace and a little bit of fruit. 
And so that is what we do uh, for our livelihood. I invite you to look this evening at John chapter 19. And uh, we're going to look at only three words this evening. Our brother talked about focusing on a very brief little section of scripture. And, uh, you know, the word of God is so powerful and it's so, there's so much depth to it that you don't have to look at a lot of it to get a lot out of it. And so we have this evening, we're going to look at three words And these are very impacting and very important words. And I will tell you why we're looking at these words this evening. Um, A number of years ago, no, a couple years ago, not too long ago, I preached a sermon at our church. And my dear mother came to me afterwards and she said, you need to preach that sermon everywhere you go. And what am I to say to that? Well, um, okay. Honor your father and your mother, in this case your mother, and if she tells you to preach that sermon everywhere you go, here it is. So it is actually the last three words of Jesus from the cross, that being, it is finished. So maybe before we look at that, maybe what we can do is read a little bit more of the chapter, and that is in John 19, we'll start reading at verse 16, and we'll go down to verse 30. So this is John 19, 16. It says, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read, Many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. So this evening, this is what is called a, I believe this would be called a textual message. You take a text and then you expand on it. 
Um, but what did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? That sounds like a very small, very, maybe even an insignificant sentence. But in those three words, there is a great depth of meaning. And I will tell you tonight that I will not get into all of it. But we're going to get into some of it. And maybe even most of it, but certainly not all of it. But uh, one of the things that it meant was that physical life had ended. Okay? At that moment, when Jesus said, it is finished, that's when his physical life was done on this earth. Now, we know that uh, that was not the end of Jesus, because we know that Jesus, only three days later, miraculously came out of the grave. And tonight, brothers and sisters, there is no grave on the planet of earth that contains the remains of Jesus Christ. He, He rose from the dead. And he is no longer in the grave. He is alive today. And uh, if there was a grave, everyone would point to the grave and say, look, his body is still here. He was a fraud. He did not, he was not the savior of mankind. He did not uh, rise from the dead. He is still in the ground. That's what the world would say. But there's no way, they can't do that. In fact, the the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the, the most accurately and completely documented events in all of history. In fact, we have many records of it right here in the Word of God. And we have also the record of men who were willing to to give their lives for the truth that they knew. They knew he had risen from the grave, and they were willing to give their lives for that truth. Now, how many people would be willing to give their lives for something they know is not true? Well, people do it, but they think it's true, okay? But these men knew that Jesus had risen, and they were willing to even give their lives for that truth. So that is in itself very compelling evidence. But here we find that physical life for Jesus had ended. As we read John 19, this is apparent. Jesus physically had died. And it is important to note that men did not kill Jesus. All right? Now, there are songs floating around out there, and there are even probably books out there. There are things that Christians say out there that we can read and be aware of that talk about how the, the, the Jews killed him. And that is an interpretation of what you see happening. But if we read what Jesus said, we turn back to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 14 to 18, Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd. And it's a very beautiful passage. But John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. And tonight, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ knows his sheep. And he looks down upon this church here this evening. He looks into the mind. He looks into the heart. He looks into the life of every person here. And he knows who his sheep are. And he knows if you're one of them or not. And if you're here tonight and you're not one of the sheep of Jesus Christ, then the question I would ask you tonight is, what are you waiting for? Why are you not his sheep? Why is he not your shepherd? And why is he not your Savior and Lord? You have been educated. You have been instructed in the ways of God. You've been instructed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what he said. You know who he is. You know what he did. 
And why haven't you surrendered your life to him if you haven't? Why not? You know who he is. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He's God in the flesh. He is the only one who can take away your sins. Nobody else can do it. You can't be good enough. You can't be good looking enough. You can't be wealthy enough. You can't be anything enough to take away your own sins. There's only one way to get rid of them, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And why would you ever say no to him if you know that he's calling you and drawing you to himself? Why would you say no? I just can't understand that. Some people are very proud. Some people are very stubborn when it comes to listening to Jesus. Well, let's go on here. That is another sermon all its own. But verse 15, it says, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I take it again. No man taketh it from me, notice, please. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying that this is the moment that I am laying down my life. They are not taking my life. They are not killing me. I am laying down my life. And I don't know of anyone who has ever done something like Jesus did and said, you know, so some people can, they, they, is it all right if I take my jacket off, brother? Preaching gets me all heated up. But anyway, uh, just last July, my dear father, Clifford, he was transitioning from the bathroom to his bedroom and he, he, could hardly, he could hardly hold himself up anymore. He, my, my mother was there. She was trying to hold him up, trying to get him back to his bed. And he got it next to his bed. He flopped back onto his bed. His legs were dangling off the edge. And in that moment, Clifford left. Okay, that's my father. He died in July. Um, he did not know that was going to be the moment of his death. In fact, he was not in control of his death. And people generally are not in control of their death only if they commit suicide. Uh, otherwise, death is something that happens to someone, okay? Um, but Jesus, Jesus was in full control. Jesus, Jesus was able to say, this is the moment I am going to lay my life down, and he says, it is finished, and he left. He gave up the ghost, okay? And so men did not kill Jesus, but at that moment, his physical life ended. Let's look at uh, point number two this evening. That was point number one. Point number two is the old covenant is done. And I want you to appreciate tonight, dear brothers and sisters here at the Ebenezer Mennonite Church in South Boston, Virginia, I want you to appreciate tonight that you no longer are bound by the law that you read about at the first several books of the Bible. Please appreciate that tonight. I read through the Old Testament and I think how could anybody actually do all this? It looks like a terrible burden, but uh, Jesus came to do away with, or to fulfill, rather, the Old Covenant. The law was rife with prohibitions. The, the, the law was, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that. And there were a few things that you were actually told, these are things you should or must do. But uh, lots of it was, thou shalt not. All that God prohibited was sin, and the focus was, 
very much on what you could not do. It was a list of rules or a list of do's and don'ts. And the motivation for obedience was what? What was the motivation for Peter to obey the, in, the, in the time of the law? It was that if you don't obey, look, this is what will happen. You find a man out, out there picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. What do they do? Pat him on the back and say, you know what? It'll be all right. Is that how it was? No. They had a council. They brought him before God. God said, no, the man has sinned against the law. He has violated the command of God. He needs to die. And all the people picked up stones and killed him. And what what did that do to all the other people? Wow. I better behave myself. I better obey this law. Because if I don't, look what happens. And so the motivation in the Old Covenant was primarily that of fear. If you don't obey, if you don't do right, this is what is going to happen to you. I'm glad I'm in the New Covenant. I'm glad that I don't have to fear that if I, if I slip up, if I, if I sin, if I have a bad day and do the wrong thing, I, I might end up with a pile of stones on top of me. I'm glad that's not the way it is. All right? Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 to 13. Please look at this scripture. I don't know if you love the Bible or not. I think probably. Let me look out here. Yeah, I see some people that love the word of God, okay? You love the word of God too, brother, right? We all love the word of God. Well, it's, it's a beautiful. The, the word of God is beautiful, and the truth is impacting. It's life-changing. It's motivating. It's all good. It's beautiful. Beautiful word of God. Well, anyway, let's look at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 to 13. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. This is quoting from Jeremiah. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them... A God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that, he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Talking about the old covenant ready to vanish away. These words are taken directly from Jeremiah chapter 31. At the beginning of the book of John, we read in John 1.17, sometimes I feel sorry for Moses, okay, but it says here, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that you live on this side of the cross, and you're not subject to what Moses had to say or write, but now you are subject to a relationship and the covenant of Jesus Christ. This is the great place, that's a great place to live. Sometimes we wish for the good old days. Anybody like that? Uh, well, there's some, there's some good old days that maybe would be you know, pleasant in their own way. Um, I used to think it would be great to be a pioneer. Go into, you know, just an area where nothing has ever been done before. Now I started reading these books about the history of the Indians, and I feel bad. I feel bad. These poor Indians have been chased here and there and everywhere, and the white people all just come in and act like they own the place. It's too bad. I mean, I wish I, sometimes I wish I could meet an Indian just so I could apologize for the way our, our European ancestors treated them. It's terrible, terrible. 
so unjust and inhumane. But uh, I used to think it would be neat to be a pioneer. Then I, then I started thinking about how big the trees were. Okay? If they want to make a field for their corn or their beans or whatever they planted, they had to cut down trees that were this big. And I'm thinking maybe that wasn't so great after all. Maybe I'm glad I live in the age of chainsaws and, you know, and, well, we don't have those big trees anymore either. So anyway, uh, some things about the good old days aren't so good. But it seems that Christ has to offer, what Christ has to offer far exceeds what Moses had to communicate. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clarified that he didn't come to get rid of the law. He says, think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And what that means is that Jesus brings all the law and the prophets together to a fitting conclusion. Okay, so here's the law. Here are the prophets. Here are the Psalms. Here are the Proverbs. Here's all this information through the Old Testament. In Jesus Christ, it all comes together. It's all put together in a package. And Jesus says, okay, now what the prophet said is fulfilled. Now what the law was pointing ahead to has been revealed. And so here in Jesus, all of this comes together in one person, and it's all fulfilled. Here it is. It's all all tied in in a package that we can appreciate and receive. And so he brings it all together. He brings about a proper completion and realization of their purpose. He ties up all the loose ends and presents it all in a singular package. This cessation of the old covenant is powerfully symbolized by one event at the death of Jesus. You know what it was? One event, one earth-shattering event for the Jews was that their the veil of their temple was torn, okay? The veil of the temple was torn all the way from the top to the bottom. And I can't, I just can't fathom that the, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, whoever was uh, aware of what happened, that they didn't look at that and say, there's got to be a connection between what's happening here and what's happening out there on the hill. There's got to be a connection. But it didn't seem that way. They were always in the cover-up mode trying to minimize the uh, events of Jesus' life and trying to make him look like an imposter. And so, great event. Matthew 27, 50 and 51 says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. So it's obvious there wasn't two people tugging on it from the bottom because something tearing from the top to the bottom, that was an act of divine power doing that. It says, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. So in one shredding moment, the old ended and the new began. It seems that this should have gotten the attention of the Jewish leaders that something divinely supernatural was taking place. No longer was the veil needed because Jesus gave us access into the presence of God. And so, tonight, I am very glad that my dear brothers and sisters at Fairview do not have to confess to me their sins. It's between them and God. Is that how it is here? You all confess your sins to God, right? You don't go to your preachers and say, Preacher, I've sinned. Can you do something about it? Can you please forgive me? Get God's forgiveness for me? No, it comes to us through a relationship with Jesus Christ. My sins can be forgiven because of my relationship with God. Because Jesus gave his life, shed his blood to take away my sins.
And so Jesus' death made the veil of the temple obsolete. So we enjoy full and unrestricted access to the very presence of our holy God. And so let us come boldly to his throne. Well, that was point number two. Three tonight is that a new covenant is begun. We're going to look at a little bit more detail. The scripture we looked at in Hebrews chapter 8. You can turn there if you wish. But uh, we're going to look at it in greater detail. It says in Hebrews 8.10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And so this is indicating tonight an inward transformation. Okay? Inward transformation. Now tonight... We need to recognize that we are not people of outward reform, okay? We're not just who we are because we have decided, I'm going to present myself this way, and I'm going to clean up my act, and I'm going to try to do better, and I'm going to try to be a good person, and I'm going to try to show everybody what a nice guy I am, and I'm going to just do this all because, you know, I, I want to I convey my goodness and, and, and my relig- religiosity. That's not it. That's not where it's at. I'm telling you tonight, there are people in, and I want to be careful that I don't paint anybody on a real negative light, but there are people that act very outwardly religious. They drive the right vehicles or horses and buggies, or they wear the right clothes, or they have the right vocabulary, or they have the right kind of lifestyle. They, they convey a, a form of godliness And yet there has never been an inward transformation. Jesus Christ made it clear when he was talking to Nicodemus, what did he say? Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so tonight I'm telling you that if you have not experienced an inner transformation, you are as lost as a drunkard in the gutter. Because it's an inward transformation, it is a work of the Holy Spirit upon your heart that makes you a child of God. It's not by trying to do right, trying to do better, trying to keep the, the church rules or whatever it is. It's not about trying at all, it's about a transformation that God wants to produce in your life. And so if we have been born again, we are a child of God. If we have not been born again, we're not a child of God. And so the law of God is to be written on the heart. It's to be an inner transformation. Not just an outward compliance. So tonight is God's law written upon your heart. Is his word abiding in you? Are you surrendered tonight? Are you surrendered to the Holy Spirit? And what he wants to do in your life. This is what it means to have God's law upon your heart. You loathe the idea of disobeying him and disappointing him, and you are happily, are you happy tonight to be educated in the ways of God? Are you happy about it? Are you happy to be at church tonight? Are you happy to sit under the teaching of his word? Are you happy about that? Happily educated in his ways so you can walk with him in truth and in righteousness. That is God's law written upon the heart. And he says, and I will be to them a God. And they shall be to me a people. And you know, that indicates a personal relationship with God. 
I'll tell you, there's nothing more beautiful in your life than being able to walk with God. It's the most beautiful thing that you can experience in life. I was talking to another man. He was a Christian man. He's not like us, but I would say he's a Christian man. Um, Just the other day. And he said, you know, Ted, he said, I can't even imagine living life without Jesus in my life. I can't even imagine it. And you, tonight, if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you should be able to say, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine living without Jesus in my life. He has made such a difference in me. He's made my life complete. He's made my life, given me purpose. He's given me hope. He's given me a future. He's given me everything that everybody wants. And I have it. That's what a relationship with Jesus does in your life. He gives you everything that everybody wants, but they can't seem to find. Okay? And so, enjoy it. Rejoice in it. You have a personal relationship with God. And so when you're by yourself, what do you do? You know, sometimes we're tempted to turn something on. We're tempted to listen to something. But you know what? When we are by ourselves, it's a great opportunity. I'm glad. I I like being by myself because I can say things I, I, I wouldn't feel right saying when everybody else is around. I can talk to God in ways maybe, you know, other people might look at as a little strange. But you know what? That's a, that's a personal relationship. And God loves to hear from you. And it's not always going to be, you know, sometimes we, we think everything we say to God's got to be all flowery and all, you know, it's got to be shrouded in religious language and all that. You know, it's got to have the these and the thous and the thys and the those and the, the you know, we think it's got to be that way. I tell you what, God wants you to be real with him. God, I don't like this situation. This really has me frustrated. I, I don't know why that happened. I am just really, really hurt by what that person said. I just, when I think about what's going, the hell going on in that people's lives, it just burdens me. It's okay to be honest with God. He knows everything anyhow. Tell him the way it is. It's a personal relationship. And you know what? I, I don't know how you find it in your life, but you know what? God loves to relate to us as well. And so, <clears throat> I will be to them a God. They shall be to me a people. It is a personal relationship relationship. Verse 11 says, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Now, I don't know who that is here tonight. I don't know who the least is. Any any least people here? I guess it's me. I'm the least. Okay, but anybody who's the least here? Maybe it's my 11-year-old son. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's your, you know, eight-year-old son or daughter, whatever. I don't know who the least person is here, but from the least to the greatest, everybody can have a personal relationship with God. You don't got to have any credentials. You don't got to have a university education. You don't have to have any letters after your name. You can just be you and still have a relationship with the God of heaven. What a delight. What an opportunity. Nobody is left out. Some people think that the missionaries, they have a close contact with God. Yeah, they're the the super spiritual ones. Maybe the people who are preachers, you know, they really got, oh, they got a a channel. Just I mean, they're really connected to God. But you know what? Sisters, you can be that person. You can have a personal relationship with God. Children, you can have a personal relationship with God. Teenagers can have a personal relationship with God. It's, It's available to every one of us. We don't have to say, now, you know, 
it says don't, that everybody shouldn't say to his neighbor, know the Lord, because everybody can know me. Everybody can have a relationship. It's not just for the super spiritual. No, it is for you. Here this evening, every one of us, we can be in that personal relationship. We can know the Lord. You can grow to be a great man or woman for God. Verse 12 says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Tonight, brothers and sisters, God is great in mercy. He is great in mercy. And I don't know how many times you failed God in your life. I don't know. Do you think it's possible tonight? You know, I'm not going to count your sins. But do you think it's possible tonight that you fail him and you don't even know it? Is that possible? I think it is. Because, you know, we sometimes think we're doing pretty good. Okay? We think we're doing pretty good. Uh, I could give an illustration. Last night, I went to church. And when I walked in, you know, I, I could have said, you know, I, th- I don't think I'm doing too bad. There were actually three men at the Fairview Mennonite Church last night. They got up and talked about how they witness to people and how they evangelize, how they go down to Penn Street in Reading and they talk to people about their soul. They, they bring Jesus to those people. And uh, I'm thinking, wow, boy, that really challenges me. That really makes me look like I'm not doing much. I just, I went to each of them and said, boy, brother, God bless you. That was, that, our church needs people like you to challenge us and to, to show us that we need, to, we need to take seriously the fact that God loves people and we need to love people. We need to bring them to Jesus, okay? We need people with passion and vision. It made me look like I wasn't doing too good, okay? I might have been, I might have said when I walked in, I'm, I'm doing really great, but when I walked out, I thought, you know what? Man, that's, that's important to God, God wants people to become his children. And those people take that seriously. And that just, it blesses me, motivates me, challenges me that I be more that kind of person. And so we might think we're doing pretty good. But what do we look like to God? What do we look like to God? You know, uh, the relationship that God has to his children should be at least similar to what a father has with his children. Now, some, some fathers are very severe. Some fathers are very impatient. Some fathers can't tolerate any weakness in their child. And, you know, that isn't very godly. Okay? And I don't want to make anybody feel bad here tonight. But it's not very godly for a godly man to be very demanding of his children. Okay? It's good to discipline them. You need to teach them. You need to train them. You need to love them. But to criticize and to demand and to, because you know what? God is very merciful. And if, if God treated each one of us that way, where would we be? He is great in mercy. And he is able to look at my weakness. He's able to look at my failures, my sins, and he's, he's willing to forgive me. Okay? He's willing to forgive me. In fact, he says here, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins, their iniquities. I will remember no more. And so God is great in mercy. He loves to be merciful. To what kind of people? What kind of people does he love to be merciful to? Is it to the proud and the arrogant? Stubborn? No, I believe God loves to be merciful to those who are humble and those who are sincere. And in fact, in 1 John it says, if we confess 
our sins. Okay? That means that I'm willing to own up to it. I'm willing to say, yes, that's me. That is what I've done. And God is willing to forgive that. If I'm full of excuses, I'm full of rationalizations and all kinds of reasons why I do the things I do and the person I am, it's somebody else's fault. Can God forgive that? Is God going to forgive you for all your excuses for your behavior? No. No, because you're arrogant. Because you're not confessing. You are not willing to own your, your faults. And so there's two ways to fail. I don't know if you ever thought about this or not. <laughs> there are two ways to fail. You can fail arrogantly and blame somebody else, or you can fail humbly and say, you know what? That was the wrong thing to do. That was the wrong thing to say. I had the wrong attitude in that situation. And who among us is always right? Anybody like that? Anybody here tonight that's always right? Not a one. Not a one of us. And say, so, you know what? I don't, I'm not going to say tonight it's okay to be wrong, as long as you're humble about it, because that's not right. But when you are wrong, at least be wrong in the right way and be humble about it. It was only a few days ago. I had an opportunity. I apologized to my wife. I had an opportunity to apologize to my wife because I wasn't being very nice to her. And uh, she's holding it against me to this very day. No, she's not. She has forgiven me probably more times than I ever can imagine. And I've forgiven her more times than she can imagine too. Okay? I just want to make it clear. Okay? (laughs) Any productive relationship between a husband and wife or anybody requires forgiveness because nobody's perfect and everybody offends somebody sometime. So we all just need to be forgiving towards one another. And that just makes everything go so much better when we can just say, you know what? I'm not going to worry about that. It's okay. All right? So since God has been forgiving to you, you need to be forgiving to others as well. Let's move on to number four. Number four tonight is that when Jesus said it is finished, he was saying the prophecies are fulfilled. In fact, the very scripture we read in John 19 talked about that the scriptures might be fulfilled. All right? That the scripture might be fulfilled, this is what happened. That the scripture might be fulfilled, this is what Jesus said. Uh, That the scriptures might be fulfilled, this is what they did. Okay? And depending on who you ask, there are between 28 and 33 or so prophecies of the Old Testament that are fulfilled just the day Jesus died. At least 28, okay? You can read your Old Testament. You can read through the prophets. You can apply them to the New Testament, see where they fit into Jesus' life, and you can see that these things were predicted many hundreds of years before they happened, and they happened to the T. And if that isn't divine, if that isn't divine, uh, you know, the, the greatest scholars in the world should all look at the Bible. They should all read the Bible. They should all see how things worked out in the Bible. And then they should come out with their scholarly wisdom to the whole world and say, you know what, folks, there is just no doubt that this book is divine. There's no doubt that it's from God. There's no doubt that God's hands are all over it. 
And you know what? We would all do well just to believe it and give our hearts and lives to Jesus, okay? <laughs> That's what they should do, okay? But, uh, of course, mankind has you know, got different ways of looking at things, and he is too proud to do that. But the truth is, tonight, if you, if you want to do it, in fact, uh, if you want to find it, the information is out there. Usually I print out a whole sheet of them here. 28 prophecies fulfilled the day Jesus died. And just there's all that comparison there. You can see what's said and what happened. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying all of those prophecies, all 28 to 33 of them from you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, even in the Psalms, all of these things have been fulfilled in my life now. It's done. Okay? And so <clears throat> the prophecies are fulfilled, and that is exciting truth for sure. Let's go on to number five, and that is that redemption is complete. When Jesus said it is finished, he was saying redemption is complete. Okay? You have, you have a full salvation package. It's not lacking in any way. Now, probably some of you, <clears throat> if you're like me, you're good at starting projects. Anybody like that? Good at starting them, but somehow finishing them, sometimes it doesn't happen quite the way we wish, okay? Um, a remodeling project or a building project, whatever. Okay, I, I've noticed some men, they can start a building project because their family is big. And they need more space for their children to sleep. And one by one, the children leave. They get married. They move on. The bedrooms still aren't finished, okay? And there's no, I don't know if that happened in Brother, Brother Nathan's house or not. He talks about the six bedrooms upstairs. But anyway, uh, you know, things like that happen. It just doesn't get done. And uh, that's how life is in this world. But I tell you, the, the plan of redemption the salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ to mankind is not a project unfinished. It is complete in Jesus Christ. Um, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And then we have another scripture in Hebrews chapter, chapter 10. But first of all, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, it says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past, unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, that means that he cleansed them, he got rid of them, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, and you probably know what the... the uh, point is of that scripture, and that is that when he did his work, he sat down, okay? Sitting down is an evidence that the, that the work is done. Now, the work of getting to this church was, to me, a very sitting process, okay? We sat all day long. In fact, I can hardly believe my son and my wife can stand sitting anymore because we sat for seven hours in that van. We only had, what, we have two breaks? Stopped one time for gas and one time for apples. We came over a hill, and there's this little apple shed up on, up on the rise. I don't know if you know that place or not. I stopped in there, and the guy named Russ in there, and my wife had forgotten to bring the apples along. Hmm, it's not good. But uh, we got to stop in there, and there we walked in the door, these beautiful baskets of pink lady apples 
So we bought a basket of lovely pink lady apples, and we've consumed several of them already. Very good, delightful. I suggest that he, he's got the real deal there. Those are the real deal. They're not from Chile, and they're not from Washington State. They are from Virginia. Those are the real deal, okay? So a little plug-in for your local farmer. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, he sat down. Jesus, when he was done with his work, gave his life. He shed his blood. He provided redemption for mankind. The work is done. He sits down, okay? Same thing comes up again in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 9 to 14. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And that's why you're here, by the way. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which, we, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, notice how many times, once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Talking about the Old Testament sacrifices. But this man, Jesus Christ, verse 12, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So nothing is lacking. Nothing is lacking. Nothing has been left undone. There are no parts missing. Probably all of you have had some assembly project where when you were done putting everything together, what are we supposed to do with these extra parts? Oh, they were probably supposed to go in it somewhere uh, because we didn't follow the directions. Right? We, knew we, had to, we, we knew how to do this. I know how to put this thing together. Who needs directions, you know? And then after it's all done, hmm, I think that was an important part we forgot to put in there. Um, but no parts are missing. Jesus said, it is finished. The project is completed. All the loose ends are tied together. No need for a touch-up because it is perfect and entire. And you know what? I, to be honest with you tonight, I cannot. There's some people that apply their minds to trying to explain all of the science behind redemption. That how the blood of Jesus shed on a cross 2,000 years ago today takes people's sins away and they try to Okay, because of this, because of that, because of the other thing, that's why it had to be. And then, you know, they try to put together this complicated explanation of why it has to be the way it is. But you know what? It doesn't change things a bit. The truth is it works. The truth is God says this is what will take away your sins. Put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's a beautiful thing. It's simple. It's, it's not hard. Anybody can, can grasp that. And... Uh, when it's, when it's grasped, it's, it's life-changing, absolutely life-changing for people. Many people who have been in the dregs of this world, given their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ, totally transformed, made into a new person, given a whole new lease on life, it works. Because God intended it and designed it that way. It is complete. Jesus' work is complete. And then number six tonight, <clears throat> when Jesus said, it is finished, and this probably, there's one of the more exciting points of this message, actually. And that is that Satan is defeated. Satan is defeated tonight. Now, I don't know how you experience him in your life today. I don't know how much, how much you experience Satan. I don't know what he does in your life today. But you know what? He is a defeated foe. And uh, let's read 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. 
1 John 3, 5, it says, And ye know that he was manifested, Jesus, to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. And that, in other words, sin is not your lifestyle. It's not your passion. It's not the way, it's not your, your habit. It's not the way you live. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin, or lives in habitual sin, or even deliberate sin, is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning for this purpose. Please notice. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, or brought on the scene, or brought to light, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, that doesn't mean you're, gonna not, you're never going to sin, okay? That's not what it means. But it does mean that you are not going to practice sin. You're going to live in continual sin. You're not going to be a habitual sinner. You have experienced cleansing. You've experienced salvation. You've experienced regeneration, <laughs> to use long words. Um, you're a new person. You're changed. And because of that, you're not going to keep on going back for, the, for sin, okay? You're just not going to keep going back. Not to say we don't fail. And we know that First uh, John, the beginning says, yes, if we confess our sins, he will forgive and he will cleanse. But what was the purpose for Jesus' coming? It says that he was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. And I'm telling you tonight that you, as a child of God, you should be able to look at your own life and be able to say, Jesus Christ has destroyed the works of the devil in my life. He has absolutely rendered the devil defeated and I don't want to quite say powerless, but that's where he's at. Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of God given to the, the believer, we got the tools we need. We've got the tools we need to overcome. You know, this, this world is polluted, corrupted, and filthy. I won't say to the core because that's talking about the middle of the earth, okay? But this world, this culture, this society that we live in is filthy and corrupt. It's almost like, a, you know, you could almost look at it like, a, like one of those tsunami waves. It's just rolling over the world. The evil is just rolling over the land. It's rolling everywhere. It's, it's, it's all over the place. It's covering everything. But you know what? I know men and I know women that live in this world with all of its filth and corruption. They live holy, godly lives. How can that be? How can it be? It almost seems as though it would be overwhelming to live in this world and trying to resist all the temptations that are out there. How can I do it? I'll tell you what, the power is available. In Jesus and in the Holy Spirit living within us, the power is available and you fill your mind with God's truth. You, you know what happens? Your mind, your heart becomes saturated with God's truth. You find it to be fulfilling, satisfying to your heart and your life. And you know what? You want nothing to do with all that garbage because you know that's what it is. Because you have something so much better in your relationship with God. Okay? And so... You should be able to say amen tonight that Jesus Christ has destroyed the works of the devil in your life. Amen. You should say, yep, 
That's, that's, I, I see it. I notice it. It's evident. The devil does not have a grip on me. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Last scripture we'll look at tonight. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. It says, For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, talking about Jesus, took likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and to, de- and to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so tonight it is finished. Jesus says from the cross, it is finished. And through death, he destroys the one who had the power of death. And you know, it looked to many, probably the disciples standing around, looking at Jesus dying, probably thought the devil won. It probably looked like total defeat. But it wasn't. When Jesus said it is finished, that was actually the moment of total victory and triumph. The devil was defeated in that moment. And so this destruction of the devil, Satan being defeated, is that a daily reality in your life? Have the works of the devil been destroyed in your life? Tonight, what does the devil look like to you? We know the, birth, the word of God tells us that the devil is as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Sometimes we look around us in the world and wow, it looks like, he's a, he look, he looks like the lion is really devouring. Because it looks like the world, you know, the world is pretty bad. Maybe you're a pretty sheltered folk here, I don't know, but the world is bad. And it's getting worse. Come to Reading if you don't know that. It's a, it's a rotten society. And it looks like He's a roaring lion out there, which he is in the world. But we need to see him as he is. He is defeated in the Lord Jesus Christ. His works are destroyed by Jesus. The rule and the reign and the dominion of Satan is diminished in Jesus. His power is overcome in Jesus. His captives are released in Jesus. So when Jesus said it is finished, it means that the battle has been won And Jesus is victor. And so tonight, brothers and sisters, that is not all. That's not all that Jesus meant when he said it is finished. But that's some of it. Maybe even a lot of it. But tonight, we live in a new covenant. We can live in power. We can live in victory. Because Jesus said it is finished. And that was a finished work of redemption on our behalf. All right, we're going to close tonight with a word of prayer. We're not going to give an invitation tonight, but I tell you what, if the Lord has spoken to you about something that was mentioned in this message tonight, you make sure to go home and talk to God about it, all right? And maybe even if you feel the need, talk to somebody about it, because it's always best to communicate those things. All right, let's all stand together. Let's have a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we stand here in your presence this evening. We are so grateful that we can be here together tonight as the children of God. Lord, we recognize that around us in the world, there are many people who are walking apart from God. They do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Lord, you look upon them even 
tonight with love and compassion. It's not your will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, Lord, I pray tonight for anybody who is in this room who's heard this message. Maybe somebody here tonight is not a Christian. Maybe somebody here tonight has not yielded their heart to Jesus. Maybe there's someone here tonight is not a sheep of Jesus and he's not their shepherd. I pray, Lord, tonight that they would see their need of you, that they would come to you in confession and repentance, that they would trust in you as Savior and Lord of their lives. We thank you for Jesus, that he was willing to go to the cross. And we know, Lord, that that was not an easy experience. We know that it was full of great anguish and extreme pain. And he was willing to go there because he loved each of us. Lord, we thank you tonight that Jesus said it is finished. And when he said that, he said so much. And we thank you tonight that we can live on this side of the cross. That we're not subject to the law of Moses. But we thank you that we live in the age of grace and truth that is brought to us in Jesus. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you that we can be changed. We can be transformed. We can be born again. We can have assurance that we are in a right relationship with you. And we can have the hope of eternal life. We can have a purpose for living. We can have your joy and your peace and your love and your hope in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. We are so unworthy. And yet you have been so merciful and so kind and so gracious. So, Father, I pray tonight that each one of us would lay our hearts before you, that we would lay our lives before you, that we would live lives that, that prove our appreciation and our thanksgiving and our commitment to you. Lord, that we would be the people you call us to be and grow to be more and more like you each day. So we thank you for the finished work of Jesus. We thank you that the devil is defeated. We thank you that he does not have to have dominion over us as the children of God. But we thank you that, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So Lord, help us to live in that power to live in that understanding, and to live lives that are victorious for you. And Lord, we recognize tonight you are worthy of our service, you're worthy of our lives, you're worthy of our praise, you're worthy of our worship. Bless us as we go our separate ways tonight. Give us all safety as we go home. Help us to come back again tomorrow night to hear from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.